Hello and welcome to the Walk Around Podcast powered by JMA Group. If you're in the automotive business, you have found the right place to learn, to grow, to help your business thrive. I am one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, joined as always by Elliot Shore. Hello, hello. And today we have the pleasure of talking with David Spizak. You know, David has had a career in the automotive business that has spanned over 40 years. He's been a dealership owner. He's been in sales. He's been in service. He helped start a technology company that was sold to Reynolds and Reynolds. He's really seen it all. And that came across in his conversation with us. Would you agree? Definitely. I think he uh, took a lot of those years of experience and offered some very practical, useful advice to any budding entrepreneurs out there listening. That's right. He is, when you think industry expert, you think of David. So without further ado, also we, we delve into the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. Just a little teaser there. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> without further ado, we will take a walk around with David Spizak right after this. A recent Cox survey found 40% of dealers didn't know about the FTC's proposed rules changing how dealers sell and finance new vehicles. Don't be one of those people. Listen to Daily Drive for all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Each weekday, we bring you the day's biggest news and conversations with leaders in the industry, like this one with National Automobile Dealers Association CEO, Mike Stanton. We're worried about increased transaction times, increased paperwork. We believe what the FTC has proposed is, is forcing us in the wrong direction. I'm Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters. And I'm Kevin Walker. Listen and subscribe to Daily Drive wherever you get your podcast. Well, it's great to have David Spizak on the program with us. David, welcome to the walk around. Thanks so much for joining us. I could not be happier. Thanks. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a fun conversation and hopefully a conversation where I can add some value. Well, there's no doubt about that. Just looking no at your background and the experience that you bring to this industry, people are going to take away some real learning from this conversation, I'm sure. Yeah. If you haven't checked out or looked at David Spizak on LinkedIn or any one of the social media channels, we encourage you. We did. We had a lot of fun doing a lot of research for this, David. Uh, we were kind of blown away by your amazing background, a, a really a renaissance man, if you will, a modern day renaissance man. And But there was one thing that we were particularly interested in you talking a little bit more about. I see you smiling. It's, it's <laughs> Believe me, it's not controversial. It's not controversial, no. But um, no, we're always amazed. We hear a lot from retail associates that want to be entrepreneurs, that want to leave their retail automotive environment and go work either at a big company or go work uh, mostly entrepreneurs. And so we were curious, how did you make the leap, you know, from from retail to to successful entrepreneur? First of all, thank you for uh, that softball. The <laughs> other directions uh, that would have required me to contact my legal counsel. Um, so, no, you know what? I think it's all a matter of mindset and perspective. And I've learned over the course of my life, Mark and Elliot, that that everything really comes down to mindset, right? And I know it sometimes comes off as sounding like a, a Hallmark thing or one of those posters you see where people have on the wall where there's a, a bald eagle or something with some really <laughs> cool right. thing. But, but we all know the obvious thing, you know, and that the mind plays such a big role. But 
You know, nothing that we touch, feel, use uh, in the course of our lives did not start out as a thought in somebody's brain. And, and moreover, none of those would have come to pass if somebody did not have the actual mindset to actually believe, sometimes against all odds, that they could bring that about. And I think what's interesting to me is that, you know, it's just a matter of how you look at things. So when I started out in the car business and I, I was uh, formerly in the military and the government gave me 30 days to get off of their, you know, payroll for because they didn't want to pay me the massive $747 a month uh, <laughs> wasting on me every month. So I fell into a job in the car business. Like many people, I fell into a job in the car business. I fell in love with it. And once I got in the car business, you know, to me, it struck me as an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? Because sure. when you start selling cars, let's be honest, I mean, you're setting up shops. Somebody's nice enough to spend a few million dollars, maybe 10 million or more on a facility. They're spending money on marketing and advertising the way you would as an entrepreneur, um, you've got an office location to deal with. You've got a product, you know, to to help solve somebody's problems. And so I wasn't, I never looked at it that I was just selling a commodity. That I was just selling a product, hmm. a car. I looked at it as an entrepreneur because nobody put a ceiling on what I can make. There was no, it wasn't like I was working at the DMV. Hey, God love you, DMV people. But <laughs> No, we love standing in those lines and the whole deli number thing. Whoever thought of that? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's genius, <laughs> right? But you know, let's be honest. When you're when you work in many professions, you're a position, not a person. And sure. I hate to say that, but it's true. And if if you get interviewed for a position, they say this position's worth X amount of dollars or X amount per hour, X amount per year. That's not the way it is in the car business. It's one of the great things about the car business. Is that what you loved most about the car business? You said you fell in love with it. Was it the fact that you could kind of chart your own course, if you will? Uh, like what, what about it that you, did you fall in love with? Man, I think uh, there was a number of layers there. So number one is absolutely Mark. I could chart my own course. Nobody would dictate what I made. And the reality is it's a great equalizer. You know, I'm never going to be accused as being the most brilliant dude in any room. Trust me, right? And I'm not dumb as a box of rocks either, but <laughs> but by by rights, you know, I didn't go to college, didn't graduate from college, didn't have a degree to to leverage in any way, didn't have those relationships. But like anybody to even today, I could start in the car business. I can out hustle you. Doesn't right. matter what your IQ is, doesn't matter where you where your university diploma said you went uh, or where you graduated from. I can out hustle you. I can outwork you. I can outthink you. I can out grind you. I could get up earlier. I could stay later. And and by doing so, if I apply myself in the right way, and I absolutely can surprise and delight my clients consistently, I'm going to absolutely demolish you on sales. And I'm going to make a lot more, even though we both probably work pretty much the same hours. I love that. I sure. love that it was an equalizer. But I yeah. also love the face-to-face -face relationships. And I love the fact that, you know, if I did a great job, come on, man, immediate gratification. So I sold you a car and I could go into the office and say, hey, how much did I make? And they'd say, okay, you made 247 bucks. Like, great. You know, and you had that instant gratification. And so there was a lot of different things that I loved about the business. And it also offered upward mobility. And it didn't take me a minute 
to become a closer, a finance manager, a general manager, and be able to continue to move my way up. And all through those those ranks, there was great learnings, but I never, I never didn't think of it as an entrepreneurial endeavor. So for me, making that transition in January, 2008, you know, didn't seem as, as uh, crazy as maybe it might seem to some people from the outside. Hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. So January, 2008, if you take yourself back to that point, you know, was what were what were you feeling when you said, "All right, I've been a successful retail automotive professional, and now I am about to embark on something." You know, to your point that you made, I, and it's funny you described it that way. I've heard that described previously to salespeople. Look, you, you're here. You have inventory at your disposal. You don't have to fit the bill for the building. All you got to do is take this amazing product and and sell it. Right. And so you have this huge infrastructure behind you. Now you go to having no infrastructure, right? It is all you. And, and let's also remember 2008, the economy wasn't the greatest for him to be able to make that. that What a fantastic time, Mark, to start a company. Right. So how did you feel? You know, what were you going through? Was it, was it, was it a big challenge adjustment at first or were, were you ready? You know, I actually, And again, it's interesting, you know, the older I get, the more reflective I am. And you look at things differently, but I look back on my life. And at one point I charted every job that I had, you know, Mm -hmm. starting from pumping gas at a gas station that was 27 cents a gallon back then to becoming a, elevating myself into being a bus boy and then working my way up through those ranks and all the jobs that I had leading into the U.S. Navy and then into the car business. And you don't think about it in real time. And I think that's, it's a shortcoming of ours. It's a mistake. We tend to not look at things in a broad terms. We say, okay, somebody's going to hire me for X amount of dollars and I've got to do X amount of work, but we're not necessarily thinking about it, about in terms of how can this serve me in the future? What lessons can I learn and what can I leverage from this that I could then use in the future? Hmm. So I'll, I'll put that together. In 19, I don't remember what it was, 1980, call it 1986 or so, 87, perhaps, I got an opportunity to to do some work with a gentleman named Brian Tracy, who at the time was considered one of the foremost speaker in the United States, you know, public speaker, a keynote speaker for Fortune 100 companies. And I kind of fancied myself at the time as having potential to be a speaker and a trainer, a coach. Mm. I really loved, by the time I became a manager, guys, I really loved the coaching aspect. I mm-hmm. loved I loved helping people grow. I loved being able to show them they had more in them than they thought they had, and then being able to validate it through coaching. So I had this opportunity I had a great job. Now, just think about this. This is around 19, I don't know, call it 1986. I've got one child. I've got another on the way. I'm somewhere around 26 years old, dripping wet. I'm making about $140,000 in 1986. That's big money for 86. Yeah. Right? And I had all the accoutrements, right? I had the 401k, the vacation, blah, blah, blah. And I walked away from it. I walked away because I really wanted to prove that I frankly was an entrepreneur and that I can go out and have a successful career as a coach and a trainer. 
So I went out and did that and I started soliciting some dealers, the first number of which basically told me what a horrible, horrible mistake. <laughs> that must have been humbling. I, yeah, sure. I literally had a guy who said, oh my God, that's amazing. Let me take you to lunch. He took me to lunch and basically said, you're a moron. Like, <laughs> you, this? you had a great job. What are you doing? Thanks for the feedback. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. But all that did was just strengthen my resolve. And um and so anyways, I did that for a number of years. I ended up having a client in Silicon Valley, had a Mercedes store called Smythe European. And the guy kept wanting me to come to work for him. And finally I did. I got tired of being on the road. The more successful you became as a speaker and a coach, the more road time. And that meant less time at home, less time with my ex-wife and my kids. So anyways, there came a time when I said, yeah, let's go. And so I took the job. Now, straight, think about this. I'm making 143,000. I went to zero. <laughs> I worked that up to over 200,000. And then I took a job as a sales manager, making less money huh. again, down to huh. about 140 grand. That's where I was, you know, four or five years ago. And then I ended up becoming the general manager, the president, the, the dealer in that store. And I'm making a healthy seven figure income. Sure. And I left that seven figure income in January of 08, again, so three times in my life, wow. I went like this, dropped down to here, went up here, dropped down to here, went up here, dropped down to zero. So when I started reverse risk with my partner, I was making no money. It took me almost two years to finally get $10,000 in salary. And I could have never been prouder <laughs> of making 10 grand in my life. And you think about that by 2008, guys, that was, that was 20 two years after I was making 12 grand, essentially a month. Now I'm 20 years older right. making 10 grand. You think that's this guy is, I don't know if we should have him on the podcast. This guy is dumb as a box of rocks, <laughs> but, but that was reverse risk. My first software company that just a handful of years later, you know, seven plus years later, I sold for a huge amount of money, you know, to Reynolds and Reynolds. So, you know, was I dumb as a box of rocks sure. for, for leaving the 140 to make nothing, for leaving the 200 plus to make 140, for leaving the million dollar plus to make nothing? No. And I think all along the way, you know, every one of those steps prepared me to be a better and better entrepreneur, to be more resilient, more resourceful, smarter, stronger, wiser. And, and to learn really important lessons, like surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you are. And life tends to turn out pretty well if you listen to them. So David, from what you're saying, it sounds like to me that you weren't in, in this to kind of chase the money. You know, Never. you were willing to take risk and put in jeopardy kind of your earnings for the sense of trying to build something bigger. So when you're talking to people in the automotive business now, maybe those that are just getting started, what do you say to them? What's your advice for those that are looking to grow their career and do more if they have that entrepreneurial spirit? You know, I think, I think there's lessons everywhere, literally everywhere. When you look at the people that you would say, I admire this person, I respect this person for what they've accomplished, whoever that might be, maybe it's Elon Musk for some people, maybe it's Jeff Bezos, maybe it's Warren Buffett, Sarah Blakesley, whoever it might be, Oprah Winfrey. Okay. It was the grind they fell in love with. 
It was the journey mm-hmm. they fell in right. love with. And they never one time had this, you know, this predefined image or picture that they were going to be in front of this specific home with the specific cars. And, oh, and they never thought just so I could show everybody, hey, look what I've got. Right. It was never about that. Mm-hmm. So what I would tell you, if you're in the car business now, whether you've started or you're in year three, five, 10, you need to understand this. You know, don't focus on the goal. Focus on the daily regimens it takes to ensure you hit the goal. You know why? Number one, it works. Number two, it's proven. Number three, it's sustainable. So there's plenty of people in the business. I would oftentimes be interviewing somebody in a sales job, and I would say, I'd ask him, excuse me, right here. I'm going to pull a muscle trying to get my wallet up. <laughs> I'd, ask him, I'd say, you know, hey, how much did you make last year? Back when we could ask questions, by the way. Um <laughs> Uh, now you're not allowed to ask anything who you are, what you are, what you think you are. But I'd ask them and they would invariably pull out a check stub from their wallet and show huh. me the check stub from the best month they ever had of their life. And then basically extrapolate that times 12 and say, you know, this is what I, this is who I am. This is what I'm worth. Right. And, you know, that's, I think so oftentimes we're misguided And in this business, gentlemen, you know, this. This business has produced more millionaires and billionaires mm. uh, than any industry on earth. And you don't need any money down. Right. You don't need a college degree. You don't even need a high school degree. And, you know, one of my good friends, Brian Benstock up at Paragon, uh, who who is a huge fan of the JMA organization as I am, you know, Brian recently had somebody who was on the reception desk who wanted to start selling cars. And they said, ah. Eh, not yet, not yet, not yet. You know, you need to you need to study, you need to learn. We really want you to to be ready for this. Well, you know, it wasn't too long down the road after that that they gave her that opportunity. She came in, interviewed to be a receptionist, and not too long later, maybe as I don't know, six months down the road, seven months down the road, got the opportunity to sell, and in her first month made twenty thousand dollars. She hmm. did it by paying attention. She did it by studying. She did it by outworking people. She Mm -hmm. didn't think about that. Most everybody in that store had more experience, had more tenure, had more knowledge, had more everything. And yet she stood face to face, toe to toe with any of them and did a spectacular job. I have another client who's a a phenomenal uh, person. He's in his sixth year in the business. He became a dealer. Six years, went to college started out in sales, studied, outworked, out hustled, same program. Six years later, he's a dealer. And in mark my words, you look up five to 10 years from now, that guy is going to own five or 10 stores or more. And he started out in sales, just like any of you were doing in sales. That's what's possible, but it only happens if you fall in love with the journey and the grind and the daily regimen and don't get all hung up in the human highlight reel and in the hung up on buying the boat, the expensive condo and the cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great advice, you know, because it's easy in that retail environment to get caught up in the month to month uh, result. Sure. Right. As opposed to the month to month, you know, did I follow the right, did I work as hard as I should have? Did I do the right things? The results will come, I think is what you're saying. If you focus on the right process to get there. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the fact that, 
next time you're in a restaurant, you know, and you think about the server that's, that's assisting you, it's quite possible that server, if they're spectacular, if she or he are spectacular, they can quite easily earn 2X or 3X as a server that's 10 feet away who's working the exact same shift with the same hours. Mm-hmm. So yep. Think about that. And the car business is that way. We put these self-limitations. Again, I'll go back to mindset. You know, sure. we're a business in the 70s. The average salesperson was selling 10 cars a month. You know what it was in the 80s? 10 cars a month. You know what it was in the 90s? 10 cars a month. You kind of see a theme? Yep. 10 cars a month. <laughs> Every other industry had evolution in that growth. In the car business, we really didn't. But And there's a lot of reasons for that. But a big one is there was too many salespeople that kind of preordained that somehow seven was decent, 10 was good, 12 or 15 was great. And that's all she wrote, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have an Ali Rita out there in Detroit. And something I always found fascinating, guys, if you look up the number one salesperson, say for Chevy, Ford, Toyota, Mazda, Subaru, Mercedes, doesn't matter. They're rarely in a big metro area. They're rarely in the number one uh, store for that brand. They're oftentimes in smaller areas and rural communities, you know, things of that nature. So you look at Ali Rita, he's in Detroit. Hmm. That's probably not the quintessential place to sell a massive volume of cars, right? It's not a huge city. Sure. And they've struggled with their economy here and there. Yep. He sells GMCs, not exactly a top tier uh, brand. It's not Chevy, Ford, Toyota, Honda, and he sells Cadillac. And that's a niche of a niche, right? Sure. So, but yet here's a guy that sold over 1,500 cars by himself, one by one. Mm -hmm. Now, full disclosure, he has four assistants. Right. But, But the assistants don't sell the cars. Once you say yes, he says, hey, could you, and let me introduce you to my assistant. He or she will help handle your, your paperwork, get you all ready so that, to take delivery of your vehicle. And then he goes back out and does another, another, another. Can you imagine 125 cars a month from an individual? That's more cars than I think, you know. The average dealer. Yeah. 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 Think about I think that. You, oh, Yeah. That's so what do you think others can learn from from him? What's what is his approach that others don't usually follow? Well, you know, start with this, guys. Let's be honest. How much time does the average salesperson in this country spend face to face with a client? So let's say that the average shift he may come in at nine and leave at six. That's probably pretty fair, right? So you know, think about that's nine hours. So the average person's putting in eight to ten hours a day. But the average person is spending up approximately one and a half hours per day face to face with a client. Hmm. What are you doing the other hmm. seven and a half hours? Are you actually productive? Are you accountable to yourself? Did you set an objective? I was at a dealership just last week. I said, How many calls do you make per day? And the person said, Oh, between 20 or 30. I said, All right, let's go to the high number 30. How many conversations do you have? Oh, about five. Hmm. Okay. So you contact 30 to speak to five people and maybe one out of those five, you may get into an appointment. I said, so how long does it take me to make 30 phone calls and to speak to five people? An hour, maybe. I said, what would happen if you did 60? 
or 90. Right. And I said, here's the problem. If you set your goal at 30 and you hit that 30th call by 1130 or 12 PM or one, what does a normal human do? They take their foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. Right? And I said, why don't you instead say, man, it's 11 o'clock and I'm already at 30. I'm going to reset my goal further out to being 60. And if I hit that, I'm going to push it out again. Any goal that you get within 85 to 90%, there's a natural inclination to take your foot off the gas. Hmm. You're in a business where you get paid based purely on your results. Is that really a good plan? I don't think so. It's like me being an Indy car racer in the Indy 500 and I hit that 200 miles an hour. It's like, okay, I'm going to take my foot off the gas. Everybody (laughs) passes me by. So So, David, I'm so glad you brought up kind of the customer face-to-face interaction because this is a great segue into something we wanted to talk about with you. You know, in your travels, you speak with and you, you talk to so many dealers and we hear so much about digital retail and where that's going. So give us your perspective. You just talked about how important it is for a dealer or, or salesperson to have that customer interaction and that face-to-face. How do you balance that with the trends we're seeing in terms of digital retail? So if it's okay, and I'll try to keep this to about three, four minutes, and I apologize if it's for people listening, if it sounds like the equivalent of drinking a sip of water from a fire hose, (laughs) but I want to be respectful of time. So first of all, I struggle with the term digital retail Hmm. uh, as it pertains to our business. And I'll tell you why. And I've shared this with so many people over the last, especially two, three years since everybody started accelerating. I've been, you know, always said the pandemic didn't invent much, but it accelerated everything. Right. So pre-pandemic, it was a minority of dealers that had a digital retail you know, store, so to speak. Once the pandemic hit, it was interesting, within a few months, that number shot up to over 90%. There was What's more interesting was in a survey done, conducted by NCM, in a group I was involved with, they actually found 4% of dealers made the decision, yeah, I'm not going to go to digital retail. And at that point, I asked, NCM unsuccessfully if they would reveal who those knuckleheads were because I didn't <laughs> buy their stores uh, in a year or two. But that being uh, as it may, here's my problem. When I go into Amazon and I click on Amazon and I want to buy something, right? So I'm going to go buy something right now from Amazon. I'm going to go look for a book. And I look for the book And you know how Amazon lets you kind of browse through the first 10 pages? That's pretty cool the first time we did that. And then you stick in your cart. And then you put another book. You stick in your cart. And then you say, I'm ready to go. You go to check out. And you go, this is amazing. It was amazing to find what I wanted. I could uh, browse. I put in the cart. Now it's like boom, boom, boom. And I checked out, placed the order. And then the screen came up, said, congratulations. Just come by the closest Amazon store and pick up your book. If that's the way it worked, <laughs> what have used Amazon? Right? You could have already done that. And then I was sharing with somebody, you know, if you go to any bank uh, app these days and say B of A, you know, and then remember the first time that you that you saw that deposit check right, uh, sure. option and you thought, come on, man, right. this is like voodoo. How am I going to put a paper <laughs> check in a phone? Uh-huh. Right. 
And then you, you, then you found out that the process was you clicked front of check and they said, well, hold up your, you know, like, like we can't follow instructions, hold up your phone. And you didn't even have to worry about getting in that awkward position about clicking the, the button. It just took the picture. Sure. And then it said, do the same thing from the back. And you did it. And then how much is the check? 10 grand. Is this the account? Yes. Boom. You hit done. Next screen says, congratulations. Just bring your check to the nearest bank. You would never <laughs> use that. Right? But so why is it that we're calling it digital retail when I can't digitally retail anything to the end consumer? Think about this mindset. We've been conditioned by Uber, by Instacart, by Amazon, by Apple. You know, that's digital retail. This is more like what my good friend and and great strategist, Ron Fry, says modern retail. He coined that expression a number of years ago. He's right. It's more Mm -hmm. modern, but it's not digital. So I think that we're in the 2.0 version. And I think once states, municipalities wake up, that this is the way people want to do things. Though we're going to make it easy, they're going to make it possible to eliminate the wet signatures that still are a bit of a roadblock. Sure. We'll finally get there. But here's the more important thing. Point number two, when you go online and buy anything, is it not a single point of contact environment? Yes or no? Mark and Elliot. Pretty much. Yes. yes. Most of the time. One time. It, it's not only single point of contact, it's a one price environment, is it not? Yes. Yes. Okay. So help me out. You go online to the dealership, you select your car. This is easy, man. This is finally so much easier than the last time I bought a car. I love this. I could select my car. I could choose different options. I could find the one I want. I could use that really cool little slider that lets me pretend if I had way more money to put down or... <laughs> Slide it back or, down to what I actually or have. Better credit score. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, I can make believe that I'm an 800 score. Yeah. Right? I could do all those uh, shenanigans. And then maybe I could even get a trade value. I could look at F&I, right? And then it says, congratulations on your new car. Come down to the dealership. Huh. Right. Okay. Then I go to the dealership. I walk in and all of a sudden I feel like Austin Powers. <laughs> and in too many dealerships, I walk in and I say, hey, I'm here to pick up my car. What car? The one I Total just did discount. on your online process. <laughs> well, you did that on our website? Yeah. What's your name? I, oh, I'm i David Spizak. Oh, hey, does anybody know David Spizak? No. <laughs> or, or even better, or even better. We oh, looked you were this on guy our, up. Right. Yeah. Are you on our website? Oh you, on, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I can get you a much better price yeah. here by being right. here. Right. Am I lying? So, yeah. oh, right. you did it on the interweb? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so, and then you go through those shenanigans and then finally they find out who you are. Thank God. No. Then they say, oh, I need to, we need to look at your car. No, no, no. We did that already. I got an invite. You know, if you look at the writing, it's estimated. We still have to appraise your car. But while you're doing that, don't worry about it. While we're completely undoing what we said we were doing, let right. me also take you in to see the F&I manager. Well, why do I need to do that? Well, we're going to need another $2,000 down. But it said, no, that I was already uh, approved. No, no, no. That was a pre-qualification. Right. Hey, guys, these are worlds colliding. Like, <laughs> we have 1985 colliding with 2023. And for a lot of people, all that's happened is number one, I think digital retail more than anything else, oftentimes is really just a new lead source. It's a new lead gen. And number two, number two, if you think about it, we have just done a masterful job 
of coming up with a digital way of pissing our people off. <laughs> We've come up with a way of digitally disappointing customers. That's so funny, <laughs> David. It's so funny you say that because, you know, we were talking before this about, you know, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, clearly the demise of Carvana is on every dealer's mind. Right. And almost as a their, badge of honor. To their joy. Right? To yeah. their joy. To their and joy. it's interesting you say that because that's in that joy, I think comes back that colliding of those worlds, like what you were describing, like, yes, we're going back to 1985. But what the thing that we wanted to ask you was, what are dealers missing here? Like, yes, okay, I get it. Carvana was a competitor. I get I get the whole joy in watching them fail, totally. But what are dealers maybe missing from learning about the Carvana, the about Carvana success? At the end of the day, they sold over 450,000 cars this year. You know, what are they missing? This is happening more and more in life these days that people are getting uh, myopic. They're getting too focused on the person or the company and it's disallowing them from learning the lessons. Mm, exactly. So in other words, somebody, for example, might hate Biden or may, might hate Trump, right? And if they hate Trump, for example, they're just going to basically discount or, you know, not, he can't not, say anything. Good. Nothing that he says is credible. Nothing that he says has value. You can't learn anything. Huh? Is that true? So even if I don't agree with everything that guy does or says, or what he stands for, are you saying that I can't learn the lesson that that guy, I don't know. I think he's a pretty, has proven himself to stand the test of time as a pretty phenomenal business person. I think he's pretty good at negotiating. I think he's pretty good at structuring deals, you know, and so you can't, you can't do that. So in the Carvana example, it's really easy to vilify them, you know, and frankly, justifiably so for many people. Why? Well, I don't know. You got two guys at the top that are CEOs that are sitting on top of more than $10 billion <laughs> while the company is struggling to be worth less than a billion right now. They sold you know, a lot of that equity at the height. Do with that what you will. I'm not saying anything. But they sold it at the height, then the thing crashes down 98%, you know, cost their investors and people that own stocks, both institutional and individuals, a ton of money. And then, you know, they basically vilified car dealers on their run up, on the come up, uh, saying that we're basically so much better, we're perfect, we're transparent, you know, we're the easy way to buy a car. But then they get shut down or threatened by North Carolina, Michigan, Illinois, Florida, they don't give you your registration, but they give you a temporary from another state, which I don't right. know, be illegal. And so, you know, it's easy for a dealer to say, hey, I would love to dance on these guys' graves. You know, they've, they've been a heartache. But time out. Right. Time out. Yeah. Because the pandemic might have accelerated things, but Carvana showed us as retail dealers a different way and hate to say it, a better way. Mm -hmm. of engaging and interacting with potential clients. And, oh, here's something else. No matter what we think of Carvana, the clients, the majority of them loved it. They loved you know, getting a an actual hard trade value and having somebody come by and say, here's a check. I'll pick up your car. See you later. Right. And if you talk to people that went through the process, guess what? It actually worked that way. Then the people that bought a car who didn't have the registration issues, put that aside, <laughs> you know, they had a seamless experience. The car showed up done. Maybe that was 80%, 90%, 95%. I don't know. 
but they basically pulled us like tearing scar tissue apart and pulled us away finally from the way things were being done and inspired, motivated, or even, I don't know, made uh, some dealers feel like we need to evolve or we're going to die, adapt or die. So even though Carvana, there are lessons on both sides, okay? From a consumer's perspective, from a dealer's perspective, there are many things that we can learn and very smart dealers out there, guys, have learned those lessons and are leveraging Carvana lessons, Tesla lessons, in order to become better retailers. And they're winning big time because of it. But then we could also learn the lessons from a business perspective, right? They thoroughly underestimated the business. They don't have a solid business model. There's no trade-ins. There's no fixed absorption. There's a myriad of issues there. They pay too much for their cars, a whole bunch of problems, right? They're too much debt and everything else. But don't cause that if you're a dealer or if you're a salesperson or a manager to not learn the lessons or give them credit for the things that they did do for the industry. Definitely. It's a great point, David. So if you're sitting there as a dealer and you're trying to self-reflect and learn from the Carvana experience, what's the number one thing you're looking at in your your stores and your businesses? Number one, I want to make sure it's seamless between offline and online. Mm. Because the reality is everybody who's a consumer or is a shopper, they're going to decide their own journey as they should. Some like to start online, get the kind of messy stuff out of the way, the things they don't love. They want transparency. They want shared control of the process. They want to save time. Time is the new currency. Right. And you think there's people out there that have way more money than they have time. And needless to say, they value their time massively, much more than say an average person. But is that true? I don't know. Because even the person that's working one or two jobs or a person who's a single parent or a person that's a dual parent, none of us have time. None of us. Well, and I would even, I think there's a nuance to what you're saying too, in the sense of it's not time as in total time, absolute time. It's value added time. If it's, if it's waiting around, if it's negotiating, but if you're educating, if you're being helpful, do you think that then that time, then that becomes a different equation? Would you agree with that, David? Uh, yeah, 100%. And I, 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 I will say it this way, Elliot. I live my life always paying attention, especially as a business, to an opt-in mentality. I love the thought of an opt-in, mm. right? We learn that from email. I have to opt-in or I can opt-out. But think about this if you're a salesperson. If you're dealing with a client, and that client values their time, but they start asking you questions or they start initiating something, it's the equivalent of an opt-in. And when you get that opt-in, shame on you if you don't take advantage of that opt-in. I I didn't say take advantage of the client. Take advantage of the the gift that they gave you to opt-in, that they're opting in to give you more time. By the way, they don't do that unless they like you and or respect you, right? So I think that it's really important. Let your customers choose their own journey and Mm -hmm. meet them wherever they want to be. If they want to start online, great. If you want to start offline, great. If you want to go online to offline, online, offline, great. Whatever you want to do. But, But also make certain 
that you have done uh, change management to address your culture. So when I come in after an online start, that it feels seamless. Think about this. If I buy something from Apple, if you buy something from Apple and you walk in the store or you go into their digital store, is it not exactly the same? For sure. Same. 100%. Amazon, it's exactly the same. Do you think maybe that's one of the reasons people love these people? So they get to dictate themselves. They even they get to feel like they're choosing and they get to determine how their journey goes. So I think that's number one. Number two, look at your tech stack. It's broken in almost every case. <laughs> if your tech stack is sitting on a, a foundational platform that does not allow you to meet or exceed the expectations of your customers, what's your answer? How are you going to deal with that? Number three, you know, we've got 12, 15 or more third-party solutions in stores, none of them talk to each other. Disparate systems, silos, right? Pizza boxes, as Brian Benstock refers to them. <laughs> and, and if you have all of these, these systems that aren't talking about each other, here's the thing I find fascinating. You know, and Brian has a, a saying, the future is frictionless, right? But here's the reality. It's not frictionless for the customer until or unless it becomes frictionless for your associates. Mm -hmm. You have a friction-filled environment that makes it brain damage for me to make you money and sell you cars. I can't give a customer what I don't have. And if I have a friction-filled environment, whether you like it or not, some of that friction is going to spill over into the client. So Absolutely. you need to really pay attention to that as well. Yeah, those were um, those are some great, great lessons to recap for our friends. I mean, these are great lessons going into 2023. And it was actually one of our questions for you, which you practically you summarize it right there. But, uh, you know, really that online, offline, online experience, uh, focus on that. Focus and, on the customer. Correct. Focus on the customer. Focus on your associates and making that experience frictionless for them so that they can provide that experience. Uh, loved your thought on the tech stack. And looking at the tech stack, if if there is one message for 2023 for dealers, I mean, you save some money. You're probably paying providers that you're not really using or are not even providing value right. to you. And so- Well, and if you're going to focus on the customer, make sure you have the technology to support that. That's exactly right. right. And not make it difficult. And then the third one, which I also love is- Make sure the culture of your environment supports that process and your people are operating in a frictionless environment. Yeah. And there's uh, two last thing. Number one, you mentioned the word associates, my favorite thing, you know, in my store, you know, we made in our best year, we made $29 million and then gave a bunch of bonuses or, or, or uh, justifiably so to managers. And that's every, everybody always wanted to talk about the fact that this was the most profitable store in the industry in the history of the industry. My favorite, my proudest moment is less than 3% employee turnover. Wow. Mm -hmm. You can't get to 20 or 25 million when you have 30, 40, 50% turnover. And by the way, just less than a month ago, somebody reported or multiple people were so excited that, you know, hey, we had the lowest turnover we ever had in salespeople. Really? How shocking. Right. The people that were making 30 grand, 30 grand a year three years ago, selling 30 cars a month, starving to death, right on a flooded floor somewhere. <laughs> now, all of a sudden they're selling half as many cars. And now they're, they went from making five grand a month, you know, to 30 grand a month. Now they're driving BMWs. They got new condos. They went out and bought boats. Yeah. Why would they leave? 
you know, the contrast principle, you go from making this to this, I'm not going anywhere. Hold on to your hats, man. Yeah. Wait the reckoning till we get is into coming. 2023 because yeah. you mentioned 2023, you should be taking care of those people. You need to invest in training. You need to invest in, in, in teaching your people. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. The last two and a half years, let's be honest. We didn't have a whole lot to do as much as we maybe think we did with the difference in the bottom line, some stores more than others, let's be fair, but on balance, probably 90% of the upside the last two and a half years was courtesy of a condition, a market, a pandemic, right. a chip shortage, a supply chain shortage, not something we did internally. If it was internally and you want to prove that, let's see how things play out the next two or three years. Right. It would be yeah. sustainable. So as we move into 2023, you know, there's a lot of prognostication, but at the end of the day, we don't know everything that's going to happen over the course of the next 12 months, but I can tell you this unequivocally, irrefutably, it will not look like, it will not feel like, and it will not be 2022. If you don't reassess, rethink, reinvent, and redeploy those great resources, those great people that you have, and train them to be able to handle what comes in 2023, the used car market cooling off, new car inventory volumes coming up, things of that nature. Those who do, I think, are going to be able to continue the party. And they're going to have a great time because we're just simply going from a low volume, high, high margin environment to a higher volume. I didn't say high, not back to 2019. Higher volume, lower margin dynamic or scenario. And that's going to create way more opportunities for service, way more opportunities for F&I, way more opportunities for trade-in. And our prices on both new and used are going to be far more approachable. So I think for those that approach it the right way, guys, 2023, they have every reason to believe they can continue to dominate and continue to have a great time. And for those that don't, as I often tell them, it's not a matter of good or bad. Stop thinking good or bad. Think good or different. Mm -hmm. That only comes into the picture when you don't embrace different. Well, David, we can spend another hour with you That's if awesome. we really wanted to, because you're giving our audience so much great insight. Tangible. We, tangible. Actionable. Like literally, you just laid out their 2023 uh, growth plan right there. There you go. So, but David, we wanted to take some time at the end of our show here and do something we like to call a sure thing. Um, our own Elliot Shore has some hot takes. I know time some, time, you know. I know some things have been cooking. Are you going to be able to get through this? You got a little bit choked up yeah, earlier. I, you heard that on camera. <laughs> but, uh, I think we did. I stepped away. But you're, about that. you're back. You're better than ever. So, David, Elliot's going to give you some hot takes, and you're going to tell us sure thing, not a sure thing. Don't hold back, but I feel like I don't even have to tell you that. Uh, I will not hold back for sure. All right. Sounds good. There David. we go. All right. So, you know, we actually talked about digital re retailing or modern retailing, as we talked about. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, I do have a view on modern retailing in the sense that I don't believe it will really ever take hold. And I, and I have a lot, a lot of reasons for thinking that credit, availability, tangibility of the product in terms of wanting to touch it. But, you know, let's put the number it's 2030. OK, let's look into our future crystal balls here. And it's 2030. And I believe that people buying a car end to end, sight unseen, so a true 
retailing or a digital retailing experience will not be 50% of the market in 2030. Mm. Sure will thing not, or wait, will not be? Will not be 50% of the market in 2030. Sure thing or not a sure thing? Oh, okay. So interesting you asked that because um, automotive executives in, in, in the country were asked that very same question, hmm. a very same question in a survey, and they responded collectively that they felt that we would be at 50% digital retail by the year 2030. Hmm. UBS, their evidence lab, they put together 10 of their you know, brilliant automotive analysts from around the world, 10 of them uh, from all different regions of the world. Hmm. And they asked, they went through that same analysis and there's a 71 page report that's associated with this, but they came to the conclusion that we'd be at 50%. So, Hey, here's my take. Let me see the people with all the money believe we're going to be at 50% and the people <laughs> with all the power believe we're going to be at 50% something tells me that we are going to be at or approaching 50% by the year 2030. Maybe hard to believe. And let's be fair, guys, just put an asterisk on this. People may be doing things digitally, buying the car, but still taking delivery as they do with Tesla. They're buying things digitally there, but taking delivery on site. So there still is that human interaction. So I'm with you, Elliot. I don't know when we get to the point on a major purchase, whether it's new or used, to where the majority of the people will not want at some point to have human interaction, to, to be able to sense that trust and that likability. And, right. and is this somebody I want to have a relationship with for the next three or four or five years? I don't know the answer to that, but in terms of the evolution, it's happening. And I would have a hard time quarreling with the people that control the 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 output and the people that control <laughs> all the money, I think they're I, maybe they know something. I don't know, but I'm betting it's going to be between forty and fifty by twenty thirty. All right. So all right. what it sounds like, if I'm keeping score here, that's a win. That's me. a sure thing. Thank you. Okay. That's a sure thing. All right. Thank you, yeah. David. Yeah. So, okay. We're going on one to number two. One. Yes. All right. Number two. All right. We didn't talk a lot about. I'm a Scorpio. It. Oh, well, <laughs> well, hello. Um, we didn't talk about it, but, um, you know, autonomous was something if we looked back at 2019. Yeah, we looked back at 2019 covers of automotive news. And that is a if you haven't done that, you should, because it's fascinating to By think the way about, the people at automotive news love when you remind them of this. <laughs> I'm sure they do. And we, we know we, we, we have Casey on yeah, very well. And I'm sure he's going to be thrilled when he hears this. He's a big fan of the podcast. Yes, big fan. Um, you really all you could hear about was the uh, the 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 robo taxi, the autonomous robo taxi was coming. Um, now you fast forward three years and it's different perspective. But I have a take on autonomous, and it's actually you start to hear a little bit more. It's creeping back. It looks like we're getting bored of EV. It's creeping back back into the lexicon uh, here, autonomous. But I have a belief around autonomous, and I believe that Everything. by the by the year 2050, okay? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're giving yourself a little, wow, way to step it up there, Elliot. The good thing is that no one will be around <laughs> That's to, right. no to fact check us. challenge you yeah. on it. But I believe by 2050, autonomous vehicles, fully autonomous, meaning no steering wheel, no ability to drive the car in any situation, 
I don't think that will be a reality by 2050. Sure thing or not a sure thing? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to like do something really bold, but I mean, just 2050, wow. Okay, so that's uh, that's 25 plus years from now. We may not have uh, water or food, according uh, <laughs> to the environmentalists, but uh, we will have autonomous vehicles. So I will say this, by 2050, autonomous unequivocally will will be broad market. Yes, 100%. And by the way- mm. Um, mm. No, So Casey, that's not a sure thing. Uh, I, 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 like Casey, I like Casey a lot, and I like, uh, I, I obviously, I love automotive news. And in fairness to them, if you hang out in Vegas, there are autonomous taxis, robo-taxis right now. Sure if you are. order Kentucky Fried Chicken, a robot autonomous will bring it to you. If you order a Domino's Pizza, autonomous will bring it to you. So it's not like it's an ep- a total fail, but in terms of where they thought we were going to be, they massively underestimated. And I think you'll find this interesting. The uh, Glenn Mercer, 35-plus year researcher in retail automotive, said something, you know, he brought up something that I thought was really interesting. What the autonomous folks didn't, what they thought was going to be an easy jump turned out to be far more difficult. Here's why. They said, well, if we're losing 35,000 people a year to traffic deaths, you know, a robo car is going to be a, a lot better driver than a human who's going to end up having errors during their in their judgment during driving and killing people. What they did not stop to consider is that there's, what is it? I think roughly, I'm trying to remember what he said, maybe 125 million miles in between each one of those deaths, if you oh, do the math, interesting. right? And so they did, they did not think about the other side of that. While it would be easy to have a robo car do a better job and not, and not lose 35,000 lives, it's not quite as easy to have this robo car drive all those miles in between an accident. And we've already seen the accidents. We've heard about the accidents right. that have massively slowed down, you know, Waymo and others. Mm-hmm. But but the reality is it's it's I think that it's uh, inevitable. It's it's gonna come to pass. And I believe that it absolutely positively you will have autonomous. I won't say they're going to be everywhere, but I mean, they're not going to be necessarily in the farms in Nebraska, but it's going to be pretty widespread, I believe, by 2050. So right. sooner than you Here, think. Here's the great news, though, Elliot. Here's the great news. See, the great news is I can make a bold statement like that because at <laughs> 63, my friend, there's only one of two possible outcomes for me, right? That's 27 years from now. So, So if you think about that, I'm going to be a uh, hundred years old. What was that? 60, what am I? 63 plus 27. So I'm going to be 90 years old. So uh, it's either not going to matter or I'm not going <laughs> to even remember my own name. By or you then. won't care. You won't by care. Then. Or I'll be dead. <laughs> right. I win. That's right. Death and taxes. That's right. All right. We have time for one more. One more. Elliot. Okay. You're one for one. So, you know, David, we, in researching your background, we, we learned some interesting things. You know, one of the things is that you were very close with the San Francisco's 49ers organization. And and that's correct, right, David? Correct. So, you know, the San Francisco 49ers have had a very interesting year this year. Specifically, they have had what I would call three 
very viable quarterbacks in the same season, mm-hmm. which is absolutely never fascinating. Never heard of that before. Yeah. Never. I've never heard of that. And considering all the controversy coming into the season with, you know, Jimmy G, Jimmy Garoppolo and and uh, Trey Lance and, and, you know, having they didn't trade Jimmy G. They looked like geniuses by not trading Jimmy G. But then, you know, here comes Mr. Irrelevant, right? <laughs> Brock Purdy. Right. Ooh, pretty damn relevant now, isn't he? Pretty damn <laughs> relevant, right? And uh, which led me to think the actual Mr. Irrelevant is the second to the last pick in the draft because no one now. talks about him. That's, that's exactly right. that's just, you're a great point, Mark. He just passed along his crown. And by the way, Mr. Irrelevant, as of right now, after two weeks, is every bit the sure thing that Elliot Shore is. All right. Oh, so, so here we go. Here so we that go. Is my question. That leads to the question. That is my question. I believe that Brock Purdy, you heard it here first, Brock Purdy, not Trey Lance, not Jimmy Garoppolo, will be your 49ers starter in the 2024 season. Wow. Sure thing Bold. or not a sure thing. What do you think, David? Well, okay. So I have to I have to I, I have to clarify because you're saying two years from now. Because next year's the 2023 season. Okay. He's got okay. you on a technicality there. Next season. You're next saying next season. season. I'm intending to say next season. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. Hmm. So this is a this is a tough one. You know, it's interesting. I was I was watching uh the show on uh, NFL network, I think it was. And Michael Irvin said something I thought was very interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, he's a cowboy, which means he's not a 49er fan, right? (laughs) In any way, shape or form. Definitely not. Uh, And number two, you know, he's a pretty self-confident dude and understandably so. He had a fantastic career, Hall of Famer, but he's not prone to giving out us, you know, for hyperbole as it pertains to other people to giving out, you know, big kudos. But he said, you know, when I watched Brock Purdy in this first game, when he had to step in for Jimmy G, Jimmy GQ, and he watched this guy play, he said it was very interesting. He said, I had this Tom Brady feeling. Mm. Wow. Thank literally, you. as I'm wow. watching this guy play, I'm literally thinking about when Tom Brady first came into the league, and I had this – I. I got that same feeling like a Tom Brady. Now, ironically, the guy faces Tom Brady the very next week. There was seven, seven people before Brock Purdy who made their first NFL start against Tom Brady, and they were 0 for 7. <laughs> and Brock Purdy not only wins the game, beats Brady, but just completely, like, crushed it oh, right 35 to 7 i mean it was a dominant performance and by the way for anybody that doesn't think that his 200 yards of passing wasn't dominant it's important to note that he only was allowed to throw the ball he only needed to throw the ball three times in the second half he was on pace for a 360 yard uh game in terms yep. of passing yards so it was a dominant performance um so let's play this out trey lance Trey Lance is a phenomenal athlete who had very little experience as a quarterback in college, but he was, you know, athletically, this guy is just incredibly gifted. Um, so uh, Tannehill was similar to that, not yeah. as athletically gifted as Trey, but he had very little experience and it. And Miami gave up on him. He ended up being what I would call a suitable 
right? Yeah. Serviceable quarterback in Tennessee. He's never going to win a Super Bowl the rest of his life unless he's, you know, third string. But he's not going to be the guy that leads you to a Super Bowl. Trey Lance, you know, that that jury is out because we just haven't seen him. He has massive athletic opportunity, but we just he's rough and we don't know what where he is in that chain. Jimmy G, we do know this. So Jimmy G, we know is a serviceable quarterback. Amazingly, he's got a something like a 700 record, one loss record, but he also is notorious for making mistakes when it really counts. He's not great in the red zone. And he's not the guy who's ever been able to lead them to the promised land. And the thing that's really ironic, right, is that one year ago, they were talking about not signing Jimmy G, trading Jimmy G, figuring out a way to get rid of Jimmy G. And now if you watch the NFL shows, the prognosticators, they were talking about, of all things, ironically, you know, is there any way the, the Niners can make it to the Super Bowl without Jimmy G? Wait a minute. Isn't that the same guy that you said they could have because he couldn't take him to winning a Super Bowl? So long story boring. I, I, I have to, at this point in time, I think that's a sure thing. Wow. Yes. What a way I to end. Brock Purdy. I think Brock Purdy, if he runs it out from here on to the end of the year, even if he doesn't make it maybe all the way to the Super Bowl, but if this young kid from Iowa State <laughs> runs it out with the level of confidence and the way he slings that ball around. And by the way, two games in guys, he absolutely positively commands the respect of even the star players like Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuels and, and uh, Kittle and the rest of them, yeah. uh, Fred Warner. So I think that I would, I would take that bet. I think Brock Purdy is showing that he is quite relevant and will be relevant for possibly years to come. Well done, Elliot. You heard it here first. Heard and really, here. what I love about that is we're tying literally the first thing you said about your, you know, gauging your own potential, confidence, and, and having the confidence to succeed with our finale here of the Shore Thing. That's right, David. We would love to have you back uh, to talk another yeah. hour and more football talk, but we can't do it all right now. So no, we, we really can't. appreciate. <laughs> Your time, your insight. We insights. can handle movies and fashion next time. <laughs> We're well, willing to talk about anything, we David. So All right. we really well, appreciate the time. Thank you for having me on. What a, what a what a fun conversation. I appreciate you taking me down the path that you did. I hope I was able to serve up the value that I intend. And yeah. uh, hopefully uh, we have a chance to do this again. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. Thank Bye. you. Whether you're a dealer owner, general manager in sales or service, or just starting your automotive journey, you're sure to pick up some actionable insight from the Walk Around Podcast, powered by J&A Group. Be sure to keep listening, keep up with the leaders who are influencing the automotive landscape today. We really appreciate you joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to. Go ahead and check out jmanagroup.com slash resources. We have a ton of helpful free resources for everyone out there. I'm Elliot Shore. You can find me on LinkedIn at uh, Elliot Shore, S-C-H-O-R. And in the words of the great Dennis Morton, be good out there. But if you can't be good, be careful. <laughs> <laughs>